0: of its saints, the grass withers and the flower falls, but this, the word of our God, is eternal and it remains forever. So let us give our attention to the reading of it. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. And the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That ends the reading of the word of this morning. Let us ask our God's blessing on it. Our most gracious Lord, you know us. You know our hearts and our minds and how they are prone to wander, slow to understand that we are not by nature people of your word, but we must learn it. It must root out the lies we believe and replace them with truth. So we ask that you would be among us this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would illumine our minds, and that you would give us ears so that we might hear your most precious and holy truth, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. years ago when I was in seminary before moving uh, up here, uh, a friend invited Jen and I uh, to go to church with him and his family, and it was, it was a large, well-known church with a well-known pastor. He had just written a book, and he was doing a sermon series uh, based upon that book, and uh, the week we were there, he was talking about worship and how important it was in the life of the Christian. So far, so good. (laughs) I remember clearly, at one point, the pastor said, you don't worship God because he made you. You worship God because he loves you. Now, at first, that might not sound troubling. Uh, After all, the love of God is truly uh, awe-inspiring. It should lead us to worship him, to stand and marvel We do worship him because he loves us. That's not the problem. The problem is not that he included God's love as a reason to worship him. The the problem was that he excluded the fact that God created us. Had he said, you don't just worship God because he created you, but also because he loves you, that would have been a wonderful statement. But instead, he was saying that that being the creator is not a sufficient reason to worship God. It should not be included with his love as something that induces us, drives us to worship him. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is saying that God is only worthy of worship if he loves me. That's what he was saying. If he didn't love me, he would not be worthy of worship. God's worthiness then becomes based upon him seeing value and responding to me in the right way. And until he does, until he loves me, he would not deserve my worship. Who then is at the center of worship? Because it's not God it would be me I would become the standard of God's worthiness for worship and it's not hard to see where that would lead very quickly if God is only worthy of worship when I'm loved then he's only really worthy of worship when I feel loved what has God done for me lately What do I need today? Because if God really loved me, he would do... And you fill in the blank. Anytime you exalt yourself above God, that is called idolatry. And idolatry can never lead to peace. And it can never lead to joy. Because God, the the true God created you to serve him and to bring him glory and when you try to do something else you can't be at peace there's a paradox in the gospel because because you are created to do it You can never find peace elsewhere. So, the paradox of the gospel is it's only when you lose your life that you find it. It's only when you let go of your desires that you end up finding more than you could have ever dreamed of asking for. It's only when you bow your knee in worship that you are exalted and experience pure heavenly bliss. This is the paradox of the gospel. And today, as we look at Psalm 95, what I really want to drive home is this. We worship because that is what we were created to do. And it is alone where we can find true joy and peace. We worship God because that's what we're created to do, and that's the only place we can find joy and peace. That's what I want to show you from Psalm 95. Uh, it's a psalm that draws the reader back to Israel's uh, rebellion at Meribah, where where God gave them water from the rock. It's recorded in Exodus 17. Uh, Pastor Isaac will probably be there very shortly uh, in his study of Exodus in fact, uh, much of the language in our psalm has Israel's journey out of Egypt in mind. Uh, this is, as you think of as they passed through the Red Sea and came uh, up into the dry land and into the wilderness and, and to Mount Sinai. Think about all the language in Psalm 95 about the depths of the sea, the dry land being drawn out, the mountain of God, uh, and, and God being our rock, um, thinking back to that rock at Meribah that Moses stroke, struck and brought, brought out the water. But even these images in Psalm 95 from Israel's journey out of Egypt into the wilderness and, and on its way to the Promised Land really echo back and draw us back to when God first brought dry land out of the depths of the seas when he created the world, uh, the plants, the animals, and ultimately Adam and Eve back in Genesis. Adam and Eve's story, including when and why God drove them out of Eden, really stands behind Israel's story. You can't understand uh, who God is and you can't understand God's love for us if you don't understand that he is the creator of all things. Uh, and so we want to remember what he did at the beginning. He, uh, first, he, he made the world and it was covered by water. He made the seas that covered the earth. But then he caused the dry land to come forth. He brought it forth. He set the mountains in their place. And, and what our psalm reminds us is that means that he is Lord over that sea. He is Lord over that dry land and he is Lord over those mountains because he created them. What our psalm is saying is there is none like him and he is worthy to be praised. He is worthy of our worship And he is worthy of our adoration. And Adam and Eve were created uh, to enjoy this reality and to worship its creator. And now far from being a cold and distant God, uh, he lavished blessings upon them, didn't he? He provided for their every need. Chief among that is, is not just fellowship with each other, but fellowship with him. Uh, He he knew them, allowed them to know Him. He was their God and they were His people. He shared His garden with them, a place of peace and abundance, free from weed and pest and hard soil. The proper response to His creation and His kindness and His love would have been worship. And adoration as his creations we could not be happy we could not be content we could not find peace without doing what we were created to do our, our souls are most at peace our souls are most at home when they are bowing before their maker in praise because that's what they were created to do that's, that's home base And so it should come as no surprise then that these are the very things that Satan challenged when he came into the garden. He questioned God's goodness. He questioned God's love, didn't he? He claimed that God was keeping the forbidden fruit from them because he didn't want to share something good and desirable and helpful with them. God doesn't love you how could God truly love you if he he withholds anything from you? He redefined love for Adam and Eve so that they were the center of it all and that the proof of love would be that God gives them anything and everything, anything they demand. But, But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop at questioning God's love. He also challenged God's authority as creator. He told Adam and Eve that if that if he if God did not rise up and meet their test for love, then he did not deserve their submission. That, that they could take hold of the forbidden fruit and they could force God to give them what they believed they deserved. That was a challenge to his authority. It was a challenge to his power and his sovereignty. They questioned his love. They questioned his uh, authority. Their hearts went astray. And they took and they ate what did not belong to them. And so God sent them out of his precious garden, out of Eden. And yet, in a way, if you think about it, isn't that exactly what they wanted? Because what was the garden? The garden was that place where God's presence, His provision, and His rule were perfectly experienced. The garden is where God dwelt with His people and where He received their praise. Those are the things that Adam and Eve rejected. Sending them out of the garden then was a fitting response. If they wanted a world free from God's demands and His idea of love, they would only find that outside the garden. Life in His garden would be a living hell for them because it's the place of worship, submission, praise, and fellowship with God. Now, fortunately, Adam and Eve's story didn't end there, but we're not going to get into the rest of their story because what we just wanted to see here today is is that story of being driven out of Eden stands as a backdrop to Israel's story and our song. As Israel comes up out of Egypt, their journey mirrors creation. They they come through the Red Sea, they come up onto dry land. In verse 6, we see that That God is said to be their maker. And when it says that, what it means is he's making them anew as he brings them out of Egypt. It's it's an act of new creation. Mirroring the first creation. But he's not done. He's not just bringing them out of Egypt. He's taking them to the promised land. Which is described uh, in the Bible like a new Eden. Eden. In other words, God is taking them back to Eden where they can know his provision in abundance. We're told it's a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, abundance like they've never known before. But even before they get there, he starts providing for them. He commands Moses to strike the rock and water comes pouring out to quench their thirst. But Deuteronomy and the Psalms say God brought forth honey from the rock And and the point is this, that water is a down payment. It's an anticipation of the honey of the land, the promised land. You're already being fed out of the land you're being brought to. And all of this was after he had demonstrated his power over Egypt. After he had protected Israel's firstborn from the final plague and led them safely through the Red Sea while at the same time consuming the Egyptian army. Think about everything Israel had seen and witnessed. And we ask, like we did with Adam and Eve, what would be the right response to God's work of new creation and loving provision? They should have bowed in gratitude. They, they should have been worshiping and, and singing praise to God with joy. But instead, Israel turns and says, well, that was yesterday. What has God done for us today? They fell into the trap of seeing something they wanted. And then judging God's goodness and his love based on whether or not he gave them what they wanted. According to verse 9... They put him to the test. They tested his love. They wanted proof of God's love on on their terms. And so they began to ask if provision and protection and meaning might actually be found back in Egypt where they had just fled from rather than with God. the God of Israel he's the king above all gods verse 3 that's not admitting the existence of, of other gods but people's belief in them all false gods are, are really the creation of man they're projections of ourselves and our desire to be served and worshipped all false gods are, are fashioned in such a way to serve us ...and to bring us glory. All false gods are, at the end of the day, self-worship. And so history is filled with false gods... ...created by people bent on doing anything other than bowing before the Lord, their maker. But unsurprisingly... ...false gods and their promises sound a lot like the serpent in the garden... False gods can be controlled if you just do the right thing. False gods prove their love to you if you set them to the, put them to the test and let them know what's required. But false gods are illusions, the creations of man. They're not real, and so their promises, as, appe- as appealing as they are, always go unfulfilled. The content that they promise, the contentment that they promise, is never obtained. And peace is never found. And how could it be any other way? If false gods are about your glory, your exaltation, and that's not what you were created for, how could you ever find peace there? Because our souls, again, will never be at home apart from bowing before their maker in worship. That is what we were created to do. And so this is what happened to Israel on the way from Egypt to the promised land. They, they focused on what they didn't have rather than what they did have. And their hearts went astray. They, they claimed that if God didn't meet their test, it was proof that he didn't love them and was not worthy of their loyalty. Their submission. And their praise. And so God swore in his wrath that they would not enter his land. He cursed Israel to wander in the wilderness until that generation died. What should have been a 10, 15 day journey became 40 years. But... In a way, isn't that exactly what they wanted? Because the promised land as, as a new Eden was that place where, where God's presence and His provision and His rule would be experienced. It was where God dwelt with His people and where He received their praise. And aren't those the very things that God rejected? Not that God rejected, that the people rejected about God. They wanted a world free from God's demands and his idea of love. And if they did, his land would be the last place they would ever want to live. Living in his land would be like hell for them. And so keeping them from his land was a very fitting response to their rebellion. But what about us? We're neither Adam and Eve in Eden nor are we Israel. Marching toward the promised land as a new Eden. But in the book of Hebrews the writer spends a lot of chapters 3 and 4 focusing on our psalm, Psalm 95. And he argues that the promised land didn't just look back to Eden, but forward to heaven, a better Eden. He focused on the word in verse 7, today. And the writer of Hebrews says... God is still speaking to us today from this psalm. And God is telling us do not harden your hearts. Do not create a false test for God's love. Don't demand that that God jump through your hoops because he never will. Don't listen to the devil's call to focus on what you don't have and forget what you do have. Because you will never find peace in what isn't, only in what is. What isn't is the business of false gods. What is, is where God is found. So what is? What is starts with who God is. And the God who is... Our God is the God who created you and He put breath in your lungs. He is the one who provided this beautiful creation to live in. He's the one who provided every morsel of food that you have ever eaten. He's the one who has provided you with every relationship you have. And he has demonstrated his love in a way that you would have never dreamed to ask on your own. Our God is the God who took on flesh and blood and came into this world so that he could give the ultimate gift of forgiveness, even at the cost of his own life. To help us understand that, Jesus actually took language from Psalm 95, our psalm, to explain what he was doing. He says, the good shepherd knows his sheep. We are the, the sheep of his pasture. The people of his pasture. The sheep of his hand. And, and he takes that language about the sheep being in his hand. And he says, no one can snap you my, uh, snatch you, my sheep, out of my hand. Because I have you. And then he tells us that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That he is the rock that is struck to give his children, his people, the waters of eternal life. And there's no greater love than that. That God would enter into our creation and lay down his life to save us in that same section Jesus says the devil on the other hand is a liar and he comes only to steal and to kill and destroy he's not coming to help you he's coming to hurt you he, he will whisper lies into your ears as he, as he did with Adam and Eve and he did with Israel at Meribah beloved may we never have the audacity To turn and say to our God, if you really loved me, you would. And then we fill in the blank. Because that would be to stand in judgment over God. That is idolatry. It is to put God to the test and it is the path of destruction. I know everyone says they want to go to heaven. Even people who don't believe there is a heaven. But heaven is not for everyone. Because God is at the center there. Heaven is where God provides everything and his people rest on him alone. And our days in heaven will be filled with worship and praise of God And that, that worship and praise will be our chief goal and the primary source of our joy. If you are not convinced of God's goodness, His love, and His worthiness to receive all glory and honor and praise, then heaven is the last place you would ever want to spend eternity. heart that doesn't love God, that doesn't recognize uh, his place as Lord and creator, an eternity in his presence would not be heaven, it would be hell. But make no mistake, heaven is the only place, the only place you can ever find true peace it is the only place your soul will ever feel truly at home because it is the only place you will experience perfectly what you were created for. Now, if you're anything like me, this is a mixed message of both comfort and, let's be honest, terror. Because on the one hand, I recognize my shepherd's voice in Psalm 95. I recognize he's worthy of my praise both because he made me and because he showed, has shown me love like no other. But on the other hand, I also know how easily my heart starts to go astray and not focus on what I have, but what I don't have. I know how easily and how quickly I give ear to the devil's lies and think that the joy would be found in being served how quickly I'm tempted to to set up some false test for God's love and then find fault with Him when He doesn't jump through my hoops. And then when I come to my senses and I look back at what I've been doing in my heart and my mind and my life, I just want to crawl under a rock and die because I see in all of that my own idolatrous desire and quest to be worshipped. Maybe you're not like me, maybe you are. But if you are, we have to ask, where is hope found? Where is comfort found? Where is peace found? Well, What does our psalm say? Verses 1 and 6. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our Maker. You know, it is so hard to listen to the devil when God's praises are on your lips. Doing what you were created to do keeps you from doing what you shouldn't be doing. We are his people. And he is our God. And he is great above all gods, Lord over creation. And he is worthy of our praise. But we don't just sing, verses 1 and 6. Verse 2 says we give thanks. When you question God's love, it's because you're focusing on what you don't have rather than what you do have. And the remedy for despondency, the remedy for disbelief, for a straying heart, is to give thanks for the blessings you already have. And where is God's love and His blessing most clearly? Clearly seen it's not in a high paying job or a big house or a fancy car if you look for his blessing there you'll be sure to be disappointed or grow totally bored and look for something new once you obtain it because it can't give peace no if you want to see his love then look at the cross where our good shepherd laid down his life so that he might feed us with the waters of eternal life. If you struggle to do that, if you struggle to to focus on what Jesus has done for you, God has given you a help in the Lord's Supper before us. Because it's here that the the death of Jesus in our place for our salvation is made visible. And the bread and the wine, pictures of his body given and his blood shed on the cross. We see in that the God of the universe who is also the God who calls us to dine at his table and to enjoy his friendship. It's here we're reminded why we worship, what we were created to do, what our chief end is. And for those who demand something else, something more, something different, this table is the last place you would ever want to be. Because this this is a table of surrender. It's a table of submission. It's a table of reverence. It's a, it's a table of honor. In coming to this table and taking the bread and the wine, you are saying that you were created to worship and to serve God. But for the one, for the person who has become convinced that the devil's lies are hollow and can only end in death, in the Lord's Supper, you recognize the voice of Jesus and you know that there is nothing sweeter in all the world. Because you see past the meagerness of the bread and the wine and you see a banquet that awaits you in heaven. For you, the the bread and the wine are worth more than all the riches that this world could give. For you, your soul is at home when you praise your creator and your redeemer and so brothers and sisters the people of God's pasture the sheep of his hand let us come to our God our father's table let us remember his love his goodness and his provision and let us bow and worship him and know his goodness. I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Isaac to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God. Almighty God, you made us, and so you deserve all our loyalty, our love, and our worship. But you have also loved us. You have called us by name, and we are yours. You sent your Son into this world to redeem us, to purchase our salvation. And he holds us in his hands so that none may snatch us out. Your love is overwhelming. It is beyond measure. And so we love you more. And our loyalty is greater. And our delight in worshiping you is heightened. We ask that you teach us to be thankful. Teach us to praise you. And may our souls be at home when they bow before you in praise, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.